Hey, hey, Andy Neary here. Before we dive into today's podcast episode, think back to how you came upon this podcast. Maybe it was through a post, a share, or one of your own peers shared this podcast with you. I don't take any ads. I don't take any sponsorships. The only way this podcast grows is through word of mouth. So if you would be so kind to share this with a peer, with a teammate, with a friend, a family member, I would be forever grateful to you. This is how we impact more business professionals, and this is how this podcast grows. All right, let's dive into today's episode. Hey, hey, welcome back to Bullpen Sessions. I am really excited today. Um, I'm reconnecting with a gentleman who was a part of my past in the industry, and I've had a chance to reconnect with him um, now that Amy and I have moved back to Wisconsin. And this is going to be an exciting episode because Chris, who I'm about to introduce to you, has put together a really cool presentation about the history of health insurance. And I wanted to have Chris on because I think for the benefit advisors out there who are selling today, I'd be willing to argue most of them don't have a clear picture of why this industry has gotten to where it is today and how health insurance in this country has operated for the last 60 to 70 years. So with that being said, Chris Ekis, welcome to Bullpen Sessions. Hey, thanks, Andy. Uh, Glad to be here. Well, Chris, we're going to talk about the history of health insurance. And when you and I grabbed coffee, I coined you the um, health insurance historian. So we're going to talk about about how the heck we got here. But before we did, or before we do, let's just level set. There's probably a lot of people listening in that aren't in the Wisconsin market that may not know who Chris Ekis is. As you can see, if you're watching the video, he is rubbing dirt in me right now by wearing a a jacket with his Ohio State alum logo on it, which we'll talk about. Uh, But where were you born and raised? Yeah, I'm from Ohio, Andy, uh, but I moved up here right after I graduated from the Ohio State University. And I know you grew up uh, a pretty good athlete. Well, uh, that I, I would, uh, I'm sure I have some classmates and teammates that uh, might dispute that. But uh, yeah, I had the pretty, uh, I think, typical upbringing in small town Ohio. Uh, I was on the uh, football team, and uh, uh, but also I was on the track team and had a great experience. I was captain of both those teams my senior year, and uh, uh, it was just a tremendous experience. That's awesome. And I know... If if you're not watching the video, Chris, you're you said 68. Is that right? I'm about to be 67. Yeah, 67. Right. I, right. If you've met this guy in person, he does not look 67. He looks about 55. So it's obvious health is uh, still very much a priority in your life. Well, a little interesting story most people don't know about you. And, and one of the things that ties a lot of our guests on the bullpen sessions together is they, they're in the insurance industry, but they have a past playing college and or pro sports. And though you were a football and track athlete in high school, you went to the Ohio State. And notice I said the Ohio State University um, and played a very different sport. Talk about that. Yes. Uh, so, Andy, uh, um we still had a phys ed requirement when I was at Ohio State University uh, to fulfill in order to graduate and uh, uh, didn't do any of that my freshman year. And on my sophomore year, I figured I better get those covered off and thought I would try something that I'd never been exposed to before and saw uh, the fencing club or a fencing class uh, going on outside of essentially outside the weight room and uh, in that area of the 
of the building. And I thought, oh, I'll try that. And I was uh, took it for a class uh, one quarter. I then I followed up with the uh, fencing 102 or 201 in the second quarter. And in spring, uh, the season for the team had ended and they were having their spring practice. And uh, I talked to the coach and said, what about it? Uh, and and uh, he said, yeah, we'd love to have you on the team. So I was actually on the team my junior and senior year yeah. and earned my varsity letter at, uh, at Ohio State. Well, I could tell you, Chris, I've had football players, baseball players, basketball players, soccer players <laughs> on this uh, podcast. I have not I've never had a fencer. And I know there's a lot of people listening that are like, all right, I need to understand this because to the layman, you see two people standing face to face and what appears to be jousting. Right. And, and playing with, as, as I said, offline playing with swords, um, give us a little background, a little history on or just a one-on-one on fencing for us ignoramuses who don't really understand the sport. Yeah. Uh, don't feel uh, isolated out there, Andy. A lot of people, including myself, uh, were in the same situation and, uh, it's basically, uh, or essentially breaks down. There's three weapons in fencing. And we call them weapons, not swords. And uh, there's foil, which most people think of with fencing foil. Uh, they're all derived from activities that you would have had in medieval times with your uh, weapons. And a foil is a very thin blade. Uh, and you have to get all the way to the torso uh, in order to score a touch in foil. Uh, because that is how it would have been with that type of weapon to inflict any damage on somebody. Epe, which is what I fenced, was a little different. It was much thicker, bigger guard on the uh, uh, for your your uh, hand because the entire body was the target. And so uh, that being derived from you could literally inflict any pain and damage onto someone uh, hitting them anywhere with an Epe. And then uh, the one that's probably the most interesting to watch for someone that doesn't have experience is Sabre. And Sabre, unlike the other two, is a cutting weapon, meaning that you slash across the person with a Sabre. And Sabre is derived from the target being anything from the hips up because you would have been on a horse Mm. uh, when you're using a Sabre. And today, all three weapons are scored electronically. You score, you uh, are on a copper strip, uh, which has the markings on it of the various positioning that you have to be in the, in the out of balance on there, and uh, and then you hook up to a uh, power cord uh, that uh, that's attached to a reel that extends out when you move out and back, and um, and then back to the desk where. Uh, you light up either red or green if you score a touch on someone. So it's pretty elaborate that way, but makes it very simple and relatively easy to understand. Certainly while you're fencing, it's easy to understand with the lights. And you have a director uh, that uh, uh, sort of uh, is the referee, so to speak, during the action. You know, it's interesting because, you know, so what I'm hearing it say, right, is like if you think in other sports, baseball, it's runs, basketball, it's points, football, it's touch, you know, points, soccer, it's goals, hockey, it's goals. What you're saying is in fencing, it's touches. Correct. And, you know, it's one of those sports, right, if I'm flipping through the Olympics, you know, they might have that on in that specific time. Right. It's a summer Olympic sport, correct? Yes. 
And I never thought what's interesting is you never thought about the fact they're actually hooked up via cords yes. and they're, they're yes. standing on a copper plate to be grounded. Correct. Yes. Correct. Cause yes. there's actually electricity involved. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Because they, in order to make sure that there isn't an inadvertent touch, if you hit the floor, whatever that flooring is outside of the copper mat, you want to make sure that the light then doesn't go on. And, uh, it's it's interesting. There are other elements of it, Andy, that are uh, precision uh, measurements to make sure that somebody doesn't have an advantage. But in fencing, the higher score loses. So if I had 10 touches against me, I lost because <laughs> that's not a good uh, a good scene. And so it, it was just great. And um, you know, we had a real diverse group of of guys at that time. It was the team was. Uh, there was a separate men's team and a separate women's team. Today, they're combined uh, as they are at other schools. And uh, just had a really interesting group of guys. We had black guys. We had a guy from Hong Kong. We had a guy from Korea. We had a guy from Iran. Um, guys from the cities, me from a small town in Ohio. It was just uh, just, a, just so interesting and um and we traveled a little bit because at ohio state we had a pretty good budget thank you football team and uh uh we had a pretty good budget and we fenced against people that were um phenomenal global fencers i mean they would come to eastern europeans and other europeans would come to schools particularly like uh Wayne State in Cleveland, or I'm sorry, Wayne State in Detroit, Cleveland State in Cleveland, uh, Notre Dame had a lot of Europeans. And so you'd be out there fencing people that had been in the Olympics. And by the way, you knew from the other team if they had European fencers on there because they were the ones that were in the parking lot smoking a few cigarettes before the bouts. (laughs) And they, were, and they were in their mid-20s. And you were like, okay, I don't have a chance. <laughs> that's awesome. And and that, that sound, that's diversity before diversity was a thing. Wow. That's right. Yeah. Um, quick question for you on that, because you grew up playing high school football and you were a track athlete, which are built a lot on strength and speed. If, you know fencing is very much mental as well. It's, it's like a human chess match. Was that a tough transition for you going from a sport where you could just muscle yourself through it versus a sport like fencing where you had to be much more, again, thinking and, and playing the game of mental chess? Right. I would say that uh, most people don't realize that the physicality and the challenge of that is is greater than than you would think that it is. But what it really comes down to being effective and uh, a talented fencer is finesse and nuance, uh, that precision of being able to uh, 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 create those kind of feints and, and get people to react to that. And then for your subsequent reaction to their action is just... Uh, um, is just really a challenge and um and those that were best at it were not only gifted athletes but um really really understood the finesse uh that that it took to be 
an outstanding fencer. Yeah. <laughs> Not me so much. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it's, but that's, I mean, I, I can only imagine the lessons though that came out of fencing at that level and, and, and competing with guys from Europe who were probably fencing at a whole different level, right? Uh, throughout their lives. Yeah. I mean, and, when and, I'm and, playing football and track, they were fencing. Yeah. Um, you did bring up Ohio State football. So we're recording this the day before Thanksgiving. The, the big game is on Saturday. This will go yeah. on air after the game has happened. So this is your chance to make a prediction, Chris. What, what's your prediction for Saturday? <laughs> I've got, I'll say the Buckeyes, uh, it'll be less than a touchdown. And um, it's, it's that school up north, Andy. We, there is no name for it. We don't refer to it by name. Uh, so I got to tell you, you know, as a Wisconsin Badger fan, we have Luke Fickle, right? Former Ohio State alumni. Yes. Yes. And my prediction is whatever happens with this sign stealing scandal, Harbaugh is heading to the NFL when the year's over. It's, Therefore, uh, Michigan's looking for a coach. I have that fear that they may come after Fickle, but I also have that hope that there is no way he would ever consider Michigan. It would be hard to imagine, uh, but uh, Luke Fickle is the real deal. It's been a tough year in Madison, but um, not unexpected. And he is, uh, I, I, I can't, I wouldn't anticipate that he would make a jump yeah, after. I, I don't think so. And Badger fans need to understand patience. <laughs> this is a turnaround here, and, and the talent level there isn't very good right now, so they got to give it a year or two. Right. But, yeah, I'm, I'm excited. I, every Ohio State fan I've talked to that knows I'm a Badger fan is like, yeah, when we heard Wisconsin hired Fickle, we were like, oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's, so. he's the right guy. Well, let's transition to health insurance. Yes. Something yes. you've been a part of for 30 plus years. And, yes. and you're here in Wisconsin with me. Uh, you've been up here in the industry for, for over 30 years. So you've got a really cool presentation about the history of health insurance. And my I goal do. for the rest of this episode, for everybody listening in, here's what we're going to talk about. Number one, how did we get here as an industry? Two, why is our system unlike any other in the world? And three, why does it matter to you as an advisor? But before we get there, Chris... I'd be curious, what led you to want to develop this presentation in the first place about the history of health insurance? I would just, uh, Andy, I've always been um, interested in history, number one. And number two, I just had heard things about uh, where little bits and pieces about how our business evolved and our industry evolved. And then, of course, uh, the Affordable Care Act in 2013, uh, well implemented in 2013, was such a dramatic event that uh, that as I saw more people coming into our business that that came in after the Affordable Care Act or during that time, it just occurred to me that there was just such a gap in knowledge of 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 how we got there, including myself and like a lot of us in the business and. Uh, uh, we have ideas about and information and knowledge of, of this development, but we're oftentimes wrong about the dates, oftentimes wrong about the sequence of these events. And it's just as we were approaching and thinking about, as I was thinking about the 2024 election, I was just thinking about wouldn't it be, uh, as I hope this should be, and I hope it is at the top of the agenda of the political parties, um, I just felt 
this was something, a story and a message that needed to get out there. Yeah, no, I, I've had a chance to see it from a high level and it's, it's very interesting. So I think if you're tuning in right now, you know, what we're going to talk about here, as far as the history, Chris, I'd say, you know, from ACA on, we'll leave that alone. I think most advisors have probably been a part of the industry long enough to, at least they were there when ACA came about or have a good pulse of why it came about and what happened. But let's, let's go way back. I mean, we're talking mid 19th century, probably before insurance policies existed. What was health care like in this country back in the back in the 1800s? Because you refer to hospitals as the factories of death. Talk about that. Right. Andy. because uh, what I do even during my presentation, I ask people to imagine the most dangerous place you can be on Earth uh, in, in the turn of the century in the early 1800s. And of course, uh, uh, people think of being a, exploring the jungle wilds of Africa or paddling deep into the Amazon, something like that. But the reality was the dangerous place on earth was here in hospitals in America. And as I said, there were factories of death. People, the knowledge level of medicine was barely any more than what the ancient Greeks had with Hippocrates. Seriously. There were a few revelations over the centuries, but they had little more knowledge than what Hippocrates had back in ancient Greece. And so it was deadly. And people that had resources, they didn't get their care in a hospital. They got their care either at home or at the home of their physician. And, uh, and I, even with the discovery of anesthesia, all that in the early 1800s, all that did was mean that you weren't in pain while you were dying. You had your limb removed or whatever other uh, surgery you had or other reason for anesthesia. You just weren't in pain, but you didn't survive. Yeah, it's almost like if you were hospitalized, it could only lead to one result, (laughs) death. And what's interesting is you talk about it being the factory of death. Nowadays, I think people also get very misled by the looks of a hospital, right? Drive by any hospital in this area, especially, and you, you, it's hard, you're hard pressed not to find a crane that is adding a new addition onto the hospital. And these things are palaces now. And I think people have this perception because of the beauty of the hospital, it must provide the greatest care on earth. And that's just not the case, right? Well, uh, I had someone once describe that, do you know what it says over the door of the worst performing transplant center. It just says transplant center. It doesn't (laughs) say it's the worst one. And so you need to find resources to be able to evaluate quality and care. Yeah. Well, and this could be for a whole nother conversation. I think the average consumer just has the belief that if it's a higher price service, it must mean higher quality. And what they don't understand is healthcare is not like buying a car or TV. It's some of the best healthcare out there is also some of the most affordable because of how efficient they are. And so um, that's that's definitely an educational piece we have to push out to consumers more often than we are. So here we are in the 1800s, Chris. We're dealing with the factories of death. Um, what were some of the changes that occurred at that time in the hospital system to ensure that you weren't coming for one result, which was to die? Yeah, the, the real pivotal uh, 
moments came in the 1860s when Louis Pasteur, the French scientist and a brilliant English surgeon named Joseph Lister and others discovered that microorganisms were the cause of disease. And it was really at that point that medicine became a science. And once it became a science, then then there were the ability to, to, uh, to really attack certain things. And we saw immediate changes in pasteurization. We saw immunizations, which had been more accidental discoveries. And now they could target uh, conditions. Uh, sanitation was cities were cesspools of disease and sterilization coming back to the hospital where Lister really pioneered the use of carbolic acid to sterilize the operating rooms. So as the late 1800s, people were becoming comfortable that if they went to the hospital, they were going to get care. In 1872, there are 147 hospitals in the United States. In 1972, there are 7,000. So there was... There, that was the beginning of that transformation for people to realize they could go to a hospital for care. Hi, it's Andy Neary, and thank you for listening to the Bullpen Sessions podcast. Did you know the ideas shared on this show are things we actually specialize in helping you implement? If you're an insurance professional and you want to turn your credibility into consistent client acquisition, visit CompleteGameConsulting.com and schedule a free strategy call. Again, that's Complete gameconsulting.com to request your free strategy call. All right, let's jump back into today's podcast episode. About that time, if I if I have your timeline correct, mid-1800s too, we were starting to see our first form of, let's call it insurance policies, right? Yeah. You talk about the first accident policy coming in 1850, first group life and accident policies coming around 1900. What, what were the initial attempts of, of providing sponsored health insurance. What did that look like at the federal and state level back in the late 1800s, turn of the century? Sure. Well, what happened, Andy, was that uh, those, those steamboat and rail, rail accident policies came out in the 1850s, uh, 1850. And uh, that was the first type of policy of any kind relating to health and accidents. Um, but they got way. They were very popular initially, and then they were overextended and went out of business, were consolidated into other companies, and in fact, companies that with names we recognize today: Travelers, Aetna, Prudential. But it really was as we approached the 1900 when we're seeing progressives looking for the federal government to provide sickness insurance for loss of income due to illness. Uh, the federal government didn't want to do that. That was popular in Europe. Federal government still or initially even was opposed to social medicine. So when in 1900, when the insurance company started off for employers group, meaning two of the employers, accident and health policies, then the workers were starting to say, we need coverage for uh, loss of income due to accidents at work from our employers. And then in 1910, we see the first worker compensation policies, but it is that uh, affinity or that attachment to the worker and their employer that was the genesis of what we ultimately ended up with in our employer-sponsored healthcare. That's interesting. So it was about that time we started seeing two things happen, uh, an increase in expectations, 
Mm-hmm. as well as the burden of providing insurance started to be placed on the employer. Correct. There was an organization, Andy, uh, American Association of Labor Legislation, that uh, they had a template for government-sponsored health care. Uh, it was really interesting. 26 weeks of hospital, maternity, physician care, uh, $50 for burial, uh, paid for by 4% of the work wages from contributed by the worker, their employer, and the state government. They proposed that that model 15 times between 1915 and 1920 in various states, and it never passed because this country had a culture, both federally and state, of opposing socialized medicine or um, any sort of government provided insurance. I think that's important for people to hear though, because especially for the newer producers, they've heard about universal care and national health care, and they think it's more of a modern day attempt that's been made here in the United States. But mm-hmm. you've talked about this throughout history. There were number a number of times this country had looked at the possibility right. of providing right. some kind of universal form of care, correct? Yes, there were and there were multiple opportunities for the federal policymakers to to really adopt a, a, a federal plan, but um, they were they've been opposed. They there were other elements, and I get into that throughout my presentation of of what affected and impacted the decisions to not go that way. It's it's really kind of remarkable given. Uh, the way our country is, I suppose. I guess in other ways, it isn't. It, we've always been that sort of, uh, in a way, renegades, right, here in America. And maybe that's the culture, but it certainly is the culture that prevailed in the socialized uh, environment that was more prevalent over in Europe did not did not transfer to this country. Well, and I, and I think we're going to have a real quick discussion towards the end about why why that's universal care, single payer, all that might not be a good idea. Um, and, and we'll get to that before we close. So here we're at the turn of the century. It's 1900. Let's fast forward. You know, our country in the late 20s is on the verge of, of going into the Depression. This is when we start to see what I guess would be called more of the modern day version of health insurance. I know when I got my life and health certification, this is when you start talking about, oh, I can remember. I think it was Blue Cross provided some kind of insurance down in Texas. Talk about that because now we're starting to get into what a lot of people know as modern day health insurance. That's exactly how it uh, evolved, Andy. Uh, 1,300 school teachers, Dallas, Texas, agreed to pay the Baylor University Medical Center 50 cents a month for 21 days of hospital coverage. Can we still find single rates like that? You think? <laughs> yes. Yes. It's called Medicare. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, <laughs> join me. Well, don't come any sooner than you have to. And, uh, and so, uh, it was just an amazing success. And the idea was spreading throughout, uh, Texas and in the Northeast and around the country. And, uh, I, I described this, uh, and it was in 1932 that the, in the community hospitals in Sacramento got together to create their plan, and they called it Blue Cross. And uh, by 1935, there were 15 Blue Cross plans in 11 states. By 1938, there were 38 Blue Cross plans 
with over a million and a half people. And by 1945, there were 80 Blue Cross plans with 19 million people. That was over 60% of the market share. I mean, all the other carriers that were in that uh, realm had to come up with their uh, arrangements similar to the Blue Cross arrangement in order to just be able to compete. Yeah, I mean, that obviously that time period in our country's history, you know, from that moment on for the next 15 years, not only did we go through depression, World War II, everything that changed and evolved post-World War II, what impact did those two events, Chris, have on how health insurance evolved in the country, depression and World War II? Well, in uh, uh, 1935, Democrat Roosevelt uh, got passed the Social Security Act, which uh, was his committee was was charged with coming up with uh, providing assistance to those in financial distress due to age, disability and illness, uh, which they did. But that committee on economic security actually had national health care on their agenda. But because it would have meant doubling the payroll tax, they just knew that it would never get passed. So that was the key uh, during the depression. And then in 1940, there are still only about 8% of Americans getting their health insurance from their employer. But now it's World War II, rationing, price controls, and the wage freeze. And it was the wage freeze that the National War Labor Board ruled did not, fringe benefits did not violate that wage freeze. So during this incredible shortage of workers in this country, uh, their best attraction to for new employees and their ability to retain employees came from their expansion of their benefits. And they did, big time. Isn't that, isn't that I, I, kind of ironic that Benefits really became mainstream when businesses couldn't compete on salary or income because of the national wage freeze. So now it had to turn to benefits and how that still plays itself out today. Um, There's two other things that were happening at that time. Number one, this is when we were seeing a huge influx of baby boomers being born and the rise of the unions. And even today, both have had a big impact on the cost of health care and the cost of the health insurance system, right? Well, Andy, I describe. <laughs> well, uh, unions started to assert themselves in the late 40s, right around 50, uh, because of the Taft-Hartley Act. Taft-Hartley said you could collectively bargain over conditions of employment. Um, the National Labor Relations Board ruled that benefits met that definition of conditions of employment and the Supreme Court upheld that ruling in 49. So that meant that the unions got very aggressive and assertive in their, what I say in my presentation, their negotiations strike for the expansion of their benefits, which uh, their percent benefits is a percent of their compensation more than tripled for union workers between 1950 and 1965. Wow. I described that really in 1950, we're heading for this explosion in our healthcare costs, but the boom that everyone hears are the baby boomers. It is millions of them are born. I'm one of them. 
and uh, and there were 76 million, and they will have a tremendous impact on healthcare costs, but not yet. Uh, and what I do is I go through and I describe what the cost of maternity is in 1950, um, and uh, and definitely what we're seeing, of course, today is is that impact financially of the baby boomers. It did the financial impact was not during the 50s, yeah, uh, by any means. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I think about that, you know, like I said, it is interesting when you look at a demographic of a group today, you know, a single employer and who's on their plan. To me, it's 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 fascinating that in in some cases now we have four generations in one workplace. Yes. Might be the first time ever. (laughs) And and the, the, the dynamics of that and the impacts of that on the cost of health insurance. I don't think people really grasp like they should. Um, and all four of those generations view healthcare and health insurance very differently. Yeah, absolutely. And so, so okay, we head into the 60s, we head into the 70s, and, if it, you know, I'm getting a sense in the 60s, this is when we're really first starting to see that this health insurance thing is becoming kind of an expensive healthcare is becoming kind of expensive and you have, you know, the social security act and everything going on there. It's a time of make love, not war. Like what, what impact did the sixties and seventies have on healthcare health insurance? So the sixties, the big exclamation point there, Andy was the social security act of 65 uh, during the Democrat Johnson administration, which created Medicaid uh, healthcare, national healthcare for the poor, and Medicare, national healthcare for the aged, and so uh, both those programs, uh, the the medical association, have been so opposed to any type of socialized care, but they relented on these because these plans were structured uh, very uh, favorably for and and administratively awkward because in Medicare, you have a part A, well, that was for the hospitals and in Medicare part B, that was for the physicians. And so essentially what you saw at that time after that act was uh, physicians around this country saw millions of new patients flooding into their offices now with insurance. And these physicians, uh, almost all of them, they're, incomes doubled by the end of that decade. But it really drove up national health care as a percent of GDP. And, and, uh, and so people were clamoring for national health care as we move into the 70s, uh, or many people were. And that's when uh, Democratic Senator Ted Kennedy uh, proposed a universal coverage, single payer, uh, funded by new taxes. But President Republican President Richard Nixon, in contrary to his own party, he supported national health care, but not Kennedy's plan. So he countered with his own arrangement that would preserve private health insurance and and provide subsidies for those that couldn't afford it. And so there was a lot of discussion about that. Kennedy ultimately walked away uh, from the negotiations and uh, and then a little thing called Watergate came about and uh, and everybody forgot about national health care. Again, another uh, opportunity. Well, I actually stopped when you said, I think I heard you say a Republican and a Democrat actually agreed. <laughs> wow. That's, that's, it's not a political show, but man, that, that's, a, that's surprising. Um, well, okay. So early seventies, we also had the, the, the onset of health maintenance organizations, HMOs. 
And, yeah. you know, in layman's terms, when you're a producer, you know, HMOs as competitive rates, good benefits required to stay in the same healthcare system, right? What impact did HMOs, the onset of HMOs have on the entire health insurance ecosystem? It was incredible, actually, Andy, that in 1973, uh, Kennedy would propose a bill that Nixon supported. It was going to do what you described, better costs, better access, uh, um, better quality. So that was the objective. And what that acted was it eliminated some of the obstacles creating HMO. But more importantly, it mandated that any employer with at least 25 employees that offered health insurance was required to offer a dual choice, federally qualified HMO. Mm. It was That was dramatic legislation in 1973. There were only... 3 million people in this country in HMOs at that time. And they were pretty somewhat isolated geographically and by industry. What they generally regard the first HMO was started in Los Angeles, the Ross Luce Medical Center, uh, to serve Los Angeles area public sector employees. So this was not uh, a national uh, solution. HMOs weren't yet uh, both Nixon and Kennedy felt, as other policymakers in D.C., felt this was the way to go. And to mandate that and require that everyone offer that as a dual choice was just incredible. Wow. Wow. Well, I mean, at that point, I think I feel like as as a as an industry and the cost of health insurance as it continued to rise and increase, now we start to see it accelerate into the 80s. And there's one other pivotal moment I want to talk about, which was in, early, in the early 90s. And I wasn't selling insurance at the time. I wasn't in the industry yet. But I definitely remember hearing the, the famously coined Hillary Care. Um, I feel like that was a, a turning point of no going back, especially when it came to the expectations of what employees expected out of their benefits and the type of coverage they expected. Talk about what happened in the early 90s with Bill Clinton, Hillary Clinton, and the impact that had on the health insurance we know today. Yes. So what happened, Andy, was during the 80s, we had the, the highest escalation to that point of national health care costs as a percent of GDP. It had gone from 89 to 12.1% in that decade. Uh, it really set the stage for when Clinton, Democrat Clinton's elected in 92 to take on uh, national health care and his health economic security act in 93 uh, was to do that. It was going to preserve private health insurance uh, through employers, eliminate preexisting conditions. Uh, he has his wife, Hillary Rodden Clinton, of course, unofficially be a part of his cabinet to get this passed. They describe uh, simplified and uh, freedom from bureaucracy but in compassionate care, but this is uh, when the draft of the bill is released uh, and then ultimately the final bill, we realize that it's anything but that. This is a massive bureaucratic top-down command control that would govern every aspect of the financing and delivery of health care. And uh, what they term the opponents, Hillary Care, uh, was just... Um, mobilized the insurance industry to create a series of ads. Harry and Louise, elderly couple, or not a mature couple, I'll say, uh, discussing the burden with anguish and despair that this would have on their lives. And uh, ultimately, employers were not behind this. 
so and the administration was distracted with other things, but it was a big, big, big deal in the industry and really for the country. But the reaction from the industry is what is a legacy that we're still living with today. And that was all the disruption uh, that um, as life insurance companies got out of the health insurance industry and were this consolidation. Um, I mentioned in the thing in 1993, here's how disruptive it was. Humana sold their hospitals. <laughs> wait, wait, what? <laughs> Humana was in the nursing home business, then the hospital business, then they got into health insurance. And in 93, they sold their hospitals to Hospital Corporation of America, which was really the catalyst for what we know today of these mega hospital systems was when HCA bought those Humana hospitals. Wow. I didn't know that. Yeah, there was so much. Uh, The Blue Cross and Blue Shield Association agreed to allow their plans to convert from uh, not-for-profit to for-profit status. Uh, There was, they had to. Uh, These plans, so many of them were struggling as their competitors were experience rating their groups while they were still community rating groups. They were getting killed and they couldn't raise capital or do acquisitions because of their not-for-profit status. So, um, so much happened. Uh, Mass Mutual, John Hancock, uh, Prudential, Metropolitan, all of these enormous life insurance companies all had health insurance divisions. And by the end of the 90s, they're all out of it. None of them remain. Wow. Well, we just covered a lot. And I know there's so much more you cover in your presentation. But let's let's answer the question now. There's a health insurance advisor listening to this. Why does this matter? If I'm sell, if I'm out selling health insurance, Chris, why is it important that I know about the history of what I sell? Well, first of all, you need to have perspective of 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 uh, your business. You need to take pride in what you do as an industry professional. And when you do that, that's not just being on time for appointments, having your shoes shine. Let me tell you, all those things are really, really important. And don't overlook any of those. Uh, But it extends to really your commitment to your business. And when you do that, you have to understand how it is that we got here. Because in order for you to frame a perspective on on where we're going, where when we look forward, you have to understand these uh, the, the positions of those in power over the century to know the priorities that they set for their future and how they derived their positions, and uh, and that's what I try to do is stimulate that kind of thought and be a catalyst for for all of us that are committed to this. Uh, to, to really consider and appreciate um, this understanding of all of these constituents and to, to, to be able to, to be able to provide that advice and guidance for your, for your clients. No, I think, I think it's important that all advisors understand the history because it, it also puts into perspective how important your job is. If we're going to keep this thing, if we're going to prevent ourselves from hitting, universal health care, 
we've got to do a better job with cost and co- you know all the things that 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 are heading us down that path to national healthcare and the second thing is you got to remember most employers buying this stuff don't know what they don't know they don't know the history they look on a year by year basis right now and you've got to be able to educate them on why they got to where they got today i think it just puts everything in such a good perspective um two more questions chris one i'm going to ask you how people can get in touch with you cuz i want the i want more people having you putting you in front of their members their employees about this presentation. I think it's important, but quickly, let's quickly talk about national health care. It's been brought up. It's going to be part of the 2024 campaign. You know it is, but why is that not going to work in America? Well, um, national health care creates that when, when the government is in charge of the health care, what they really have as their lever is price. And when all you do is control price, the end result is a rationing of care and it lowers the quality of care. Now, is there a role for the government in healthcare? You bet. Is it the Affordable Care Act? I don't think so, because that was tackling they say access, they said price, but it hasn't achieved that. And so we need to come up with more creative uh, solutions involving the private sector to create this kind of disruption. We need some enabling legislation. Maybe we need a high risk pool provided by the federal government. I don't, I'm not sure what the solution is, but just imposing Medicare for all or some type of national health care we are not going to be happy and satisfied with that when we are have the expectations that we've developed over the last 100 years. Yeah, no, I, I think the national health care, the, the proponents of it, their stance is we need access for all. And I, I, I agree. That's important. Yeah. But they're not. It, it's it's making a, it's making a decision without discernment. You don't know what the back end ramifications are, which is when you give access for all. The only two things that will happen is it will get I can't hear you now, Randy. Did I just get unmuted there? Yes, I did not hear you. I'll say it again. Sorry, somehow my mic got unmuted there. I apologize. Um, when, when When your whole mission is access to care for all, it can only go two ways. Price goes up and the care, the rationing of care is, is the end result, as you said, Chris. And the other thing is, Andy, what, what's the problem with access? That's not the problem. It's the cost of care is the problem. People have access. This is such a fallacy, I believe, in, in, our, in, in our culture. And, and too many politicians try to, as they do with so many things, try to exploit that. It's not about access. They're, all, they're, they're disrupting the entire system for maybe 3% of the population. There are better solutions. I don't know exactly what they are, but you don't have to turn the entire system upside down. For yeah, absolutely. I agree. Well, I love what you're doing, Chris. Um, 
I know you are you are giving this presentation, the history of health insurance to insurance agencies, associations like NABIP. If somebody's listening in and they are a, a board member of a NABIP chapter or they have an agency where they're like, hey, I would love to have my employees have a better grasp of where why we've gotten to where we've got. What is the easiest way to get in touch with you? So thanks, Andy. And uh, and uh, it's something that I'm approaching the end of my career where I've been working for the last 28 years. And so I haven't really uh, developed my in, to the extent I want to this uh, um, this consulting arm here to be able to take this thing to the next step. But I'm out there. Uh Chris Ekus, my name, C-H-R-I-S-E-C-O-S at yahoo.com. I am on LinkedIn. Uh, and uh, as I have mentioned to you that day we got together, I'm still in the phone book. So uh, <laughs> as long as my in-laws are around, we have to keep our landline. So I'm out there. And uh, again, through Chris Ekus at yahoo.com, through LinkedIn uh, and my uh, um you know, I'm, then I'd be happy to give anybody my number after that. And, of course, you have it. So uh, um, we'd love to hear from anyone that would that would be interested in this message that I'm uh, putting together. And I'm going to yeah. be working on some others as well. Well, yeah, and I could tell you, Chris, you know, once this goes out on LinkedIn, I'm sure you're going to get a lot of messages, a lot of follows. You're going to have people sending out LinkedIn invites to you because I think this is an important topic. I, I've, I've gotten an inside peek at the presentation and I, I think it's really important more people in this industry hear it. I'll, t- you know, somebody who had, you know, his health and life license, life and health license, you get a very small snippet of the history of health insurance as you get licensed. But having that perspective of way, why we've arrived at the place we have, and not just a perspective on the last 15 years, is is so important. So thank you again for taking the time to be here. Wow. This was excellent. And I'm, I'm excited to have a lot of health insurance advisors hear this. Well, thank you, Andy, and it was certainly my pleasure. I enjoyed sharing this. For everybody else, take take notes on this and and use this information Chris has shared with you to put a better perspective on what it is you're selling. Understand how important what you're selling is, and then use this as an opportunity to educate your clients and your prospects so they can have a much better perspective on why they're buying what they're buying and why it costs and what it looks like today. And because there is a history of information, laws, rules, events that have led to where we are today. Be good. Thank you for taking the time to listen to today's podcast episode. Remember, if you found value in this episode, do me a favor, give it a like, share it, post about it, Go subscribe to make sure you get every episode from us every single week. And my only ask from you is that if you have anybody in your life, whether it be a teammate, a peer, family member, or a friend, please share this podcast with them. That's how we grow. We only grow through word of mouth. And I would be forever grateful if you take the time to do that. All right. Now, it's time for you to take what you learned, and it's time for you to go out and share your message with the world execution, clarity, and consistency is everything. Be well.